Oh, Father, we do not have a complete grasp of your holiness. We do not have a complete grasp of our sinfulness. We need to be awakened to both today. We need the scales to fall off of our eyes. We need our hearts to burn within us. We need to taste of the living water. We need that bread that satisfies. But Father, I would, I would rather die than to do this exposition without the help of your Spirit. It's all in vain unless the Holy Spirit makes the book live. Help me to preach like a dying man to dying men and women. To emphasize what a dying man would emphasize. To give dying people what dying people need before they meet you. Father, help me to prepare my people to die. To die well. To die with hope. To die in Christ. As the parable of the sower and the seed teaches us, it's my job to preach. It's your job to reveal. It's my job to scatter the seed. It's your job to make it grow. So today, help me to sow well behind this pulpit. And tonight, sleep well in my bed. Sow the seed and go to sleep. The guy in your parable just spread the seed, prayed for rain, and went to bed. The power was in the seed. The word does the work. May I say with Luther... I did nothing. The Word did it all. Father, this is our corporate plea. Amen. If you're new, new with us, we're in our last installment in the book of Philippians. We do not do sermon series organized around topics. We do expository preaching. We preach through entire books of the Bible. I open up a portion of Scripture and I give the author's intent. In other words, I pull meaning from the text... That's exegesis, not put meaning into the text. That's eisegesis. I like the analogy that Martin Luther gave on the study habits of an expositor. He said, I shake the whole apple tree that the ripest might fall. Then I climb the tree and shake each limb. And then each branch and then each twig. And then I look under each leaf. Friends, that's all we do here. We shook Philippians that the ripest fruit might fall. Then we climbed Philippians to shake each limb. Then went further to shake each branch, then each twig. Then we looked under each leaf. And it's been quite a fruitful tree for us. We have feasted on its abundance. But after today, we will corporately climb down the tree with full bellies, full hearts, and hopefully... Full of new affections for Christ. The last branch to shake is verses 14 through 23. Now personally, I would not have ended the book this way. Not on this subject, not with this emphasis. I wouldn't have bid farewell to the Philippians this way. And Paul looks at me and he says, Kyle, I don't care how you would choose to end the book. <laughs> through the inspiration of scripture, this is how it needed to end. Well, thank you, Paul. I understand. Paul ends the letter on the importance of gospel giving. Let's say those two words on the count of three. One, two, three. Gospel giving. If you don't say it with your bank account, I at least want you to say it with your lips. <laughs> Non-Christians. 
I want to be completely upfront with you. You are about to hear a lot of insider talk. In fact, this entire book has been insider language. And I think this particular insider language will be enlightening for you. You will see the motive behind why we do what we do. We don't give to charity. We give to God. And this may be your first time in church in a long time. Or maybe your first time in church forever. And you're like, man, I came on money Sunday. <laughs> no, you came on exposition Sunday, which is every Sunday. And the text just happens to be dealing with gospel giving. Now, if a friend invited you today, they're probably sitting next to you thinking in their minds, man, I wish I would have invited them on another Sunday. Friends, don't think that. No, it's a divine appointment that you're here this Sunday. You need this text. You must understand the first word, gospel, before you can understand the second word, giving. Giving flows out of receiving the gospel. So some of you non-Christians, you may hear me talk today, and you may leave saying, you know what? I'm going to start giving to that church. Friends, you can give to this church and still go to hell. Giving doesn't lead you to the gospel. Don't get it twisted. Don't try to work backward. You're not earning salvation by giving. That's impossible. You can't pay off God. You can't earn salvation by setting up recurring giving. We give because we are saved, not in order to be saved. We give as a response to the incredible grace that God has shown us. And that's non-Christians. Christians. Philippians has centered on your sanctification. Week after week, it's hit hard on how you can grow in Christ. Grow in your walk with the Lord. Paul's ringing the same bell here. Hitting the same note on the piano. Here's another way you can grow from a, a baby Christian to a mature Christian. He says, gospel giving. Giving is a part of your sanctification. It's part of you growing in Christ. And comfortable Western Christians feel discomfort with that truth. But Jesus insists on being master of your MasterCard. And by the way, none of us have arrived in this particular area of sanctification. We all have room to grow in our gospel giving. And perhaps some questions would help us realize that. Do you desire to grow in your gospel giving? If giving is an aspect of your Christian growth, is it worth it to you to lose the money and gain the maturity? Now, I want to let you in on a little secret. It's going to be surprising to, to many of you. Most pastors are extremely hesitant to talk about money in the church. Why? Well, there are several reasons. First, because there are many religious hucksters who prey on gullible givers. Creflo Dollar owning two big mansions. Joyce Meyer worth $25 million. Joel Olstein, $10.5 million mansion. Benny Hinn worth $42 million. Stephen Furtick, massive mansion in Charlotte. T.D. Jakes, 14,000 square foot house worth $150 million. Kenneth Copeland, I can't fathom this, worth $760 million. And so pastors want to look at you and say, we aren't these guys. <laughs> We're not using our influence to, to build an empire on earth. 
But the remedy for preachers who talk too much about money or who do so with the wrong motives is not to avoid discussing money at all. Every pastor should feel free to talk about money because every pastor should care about the fruitfulness of God's people. As pastors, we have the responsibility of seeing people grow spiritually and invest in eternity. We should want to see growth and faithfulness in every area of their life, including financial stewardship. Now, this doesn't mean that we know everyone's salary nor what's in their bank account. But we should teach on it and hold people accountable because we care for God's people. And because we will give an account for shepherding them. Now I'm going to give you two hooks to hang all the spiritual content this morning. The first hook is the history of giving. We're going to look at that in verses 14, 15, and 16. And then the second hook is the theology of giving. We're going to look at that in verses 17 through 23. Under each of those headings, I'm going to give you some applications. I'm calling them gospel giving applications. Context first. What's going on here? Ten years ago, Paul started the first church in Europe at Philippi. But he's now 800 miles away under house arrest for preaching the gospel. But he's received a care basket from the church at Philippi. And you can see what's in the basket in verse 18. But they also gave him a monetary gift to take care of his back rent and more. And now Paul writes a thank you note back. The book of Philippians, simply a thank you note. Sam Gordon wrote in his commentary that this letter is the most famous thank you letter in church history. And I would agree. Verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul says it's a beautiful thing it's beautiful that you came alongside me in my times of trouble. One of the reasons the Philippian church is worth remembering is because they remembered. Verse 15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now stop and let that sink in. At this late point in Paul's ministry, where dozens and dozens of churches now dot the landscape, none of them, none of them captured the vision and value of the Apostle Paul. Everyone else just sort of forgot him. Now, to properly explain the, the history of giving, I need to show you a map. And there are three massive um, groups of land on this map, you'll see over here on the left, you have Italy. That's where modern-day Italy is, and that's, you'll see Paul is imprisoned under house arrest in Rome. And then that middle landmass, that is modern-day Greece in Europe. If you go up a little bit on the left side, you'll have Albania, Croatia, Slovenia, in the middle of that, you have Serbia, Hungary, Romania. Um, to the right, you'll have Bulgaria. Now, the big landmass to the, to the right of all of those is where it says Galatia. That is modern-day Turkey. So here's, here's the purpose for this. I want you to find Philippi on, on that map. After Paul founded this church in Philippi, he left. And he traveled 100 miles to Thessalonica. 
And he faced lots of opposition and persecution in founding that church. He stayed there for three weeks. Some rude fellows of the baser sort heard Paul was staying with a guy in Thessalonica named Jason. So they kicked down the door to Jason's house and couldn't find Paul because he was warned. So they dragged Jason before the city authorities saying, These men have turned the world upside down. Now, by the way, little side note, do you know how Paul and his crew turned the world upside down? Uh, by having a coffee bar in church and a light show and a mist fog behind the band. No, no. I love what the text says in Acts 17. Paul opened the Bible and reasoned with them from the scriptures concerning Christ. Opened the Bible, changed the world. But notice what Paul says in verse 16 of our text. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The church at Philippi sent two contributions during those three weeks. And eventually things got so heated that the new Christians in Thessalonica sent Paul away at night. So then Paul goes 50 miles to Berea. Those people ate up the word. Bereans were for real about their Bible study. And then these rude fellows of the baser sort heard that the Bereans were soaking up the word. And they said, we can't have that. So they traveled from Thessalonica 50 miles to stop it. If Satan doesn't have local people, he will import them. They will try to keep you from hearing the word of God. Paul's now targeted two other cities in Europe. In all of that time, only one church helped Paul reach the unreached. One church. The church at Philippi. The enemies of the gospel would eventually run Paul out of Berea, so he would have to go to Athens. Paul would travel 195 miles by boat. He could have traveled it by land, but they put him on boat. The green line on the map is, is wrong. Travel by boat, 195 miles to Athens. Now, Athens was like an intellectual capital of the world. Lots of bigwig PhDs come in to lecture. People like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno. Paul unpacks the gospel to these intellectuals, and some are converted. Some said... I will hear this again, and others just simply mocked. But you need to know that Paul is still living off money supplied by the Philippians at this time. They are financing all of his evangelistic work. Then Paul went 50 miles to a wealthy city, Corinth. Now, what was Paul's evangelistic work like in Corinth? Well, he wasn't starting a church on Sesame Street. He has arrived at one of the most ungodly cities on planet Earth. Historians tell us it was the city of 10,000 prostitutes. It was the Las Vegas of the first century. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Sin City. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Sin City. Streets were filled with traveling sailors looking to blow time and money. Actually, the Greek word for Corinthian had already become a nickname for immorality. If you said, Joe over there is a Corinthian kind of guy, you meant... He was immoral. It, it, it would be like saying, oh, you remind me of Cardi B. <laughs> Not a good thing. Not a good thing. Does anybody know who Cardi B is? My wife listens all the time. I just didn't know if, any, <laughs> know if anyone else did. Now, now, notice, everywhere Paul went, he left one thing. A church. Now, I'd like for you to write this reference down. I want you to stay in Philippians. So I don't need you to turn, but just write it down for your study later, your homework assignment. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul tells the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 
that when I planted among you, when I planted the church at Corinth, it was entirely sponsored by the church at Philippi. And the entire time they were sponsoring me, they were being persecuted. And they were in deep poverty. Because the city of Corinth had a love affair with money, and they already idolized it, Paul didn't want to ask them to support the work that evangelized their own and discipled their own. Later, Paul said that he regretted that. He said in chapter 11 of that same book that I robbed poor churches in order to minister to your rich church. Now, what's the point of the map? You can trace the Philippians' money on Paul's map. And that leads us to our first application. Become a local church partner, not a consumer. Verse 15. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now Paul seems to deliberately exploit the commercial nuance associated with the word partner. It's a business word. Used in the first century in fishing partnerships on the sea. Let's start a fishing business. I'll come in with this. You come in with this. I went to the gym last week, you know, to look at my phone the whole time instead of actually work out. Have you, have you noticed that some people do? Like crack fiends, they just can't put it down. Anyway, I was walking and I saw a piece of trash on the floor right in my path. And so here's what I did. As I got closer and closer, I, I kept eyeing it. And then once I got right over top of it, I stepped over and kept walking. You know why? Because I'm a Planet Fitness consumer, not a Planet Fitness partner. If I were a partner and I had a stake in that gym, I would have picked the trash up. I saw a new person waiting at the counter the other week looking lost. I didn't help him. You know why? Because I'm a consumer. I'm just there for the weights, not to meet new people. There's a big difference between partners and consumers. Consumers just come in to get what they want. Partners are more invested. Don't treat this local church like I treat Planet Fitness. <laughs> if you see trash, pick it up. If you see someone lost and confused, don't try to be a ninja and see if you can escape without eye contact. <laughs> Show them to the kids' classes. The church at Philippi became a partner. How? Simply by giving to God's work. If you aren't a giver, you aren't a partner. You're more like a consumer or a customer. But Paul doesn't view the Philippians as customers. He views them as co-laborers. They put skin in the game. Their generosity helped things grow, helped send Paul around the map. And that leads us to our second gospel-giving application. Open up, this, these next words are taken straight from Scripture, open up a giving and receiving relationship with your local church. In fact, let me just read that to you. Verse 15. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. This is recognized by most scholars as accounting language of debits and credits. It's banking language, expenditures and receipts. The Greek is really a metaphor and it could be translated, you opened up an account with me. Church at Philippi, when you were young and others were done... You gave. Paul says no other church entered into financial partnership. Apparently, some were enjoying the benefits of Paul's teaching and pastoral care, but weren't assuming the responsibility of giving. 
And how common this is in local congregations. Receiving benefits, but giving nothing in return. When a person is receiving sound instruction, which leads to life and godliness. When a person is receiving pastoral care, they have the privilege and the responsibility of giving to support the mission of the church. Vision needs provision. Ministry needs fuel, just like cars and people. And Paul tells the Philippians, you provided that fuel. Application number three. Do combat giving and consistent giving. Paul needed a church that cared for the unreached. That was willing to sponsor him going into dangerous Thessalonica and wicked Corinth areas. This is combat giving. The gospel took root very quickly in the Philippians' hearts and it led them to open their wallets and contribute to reach other areas, to reach other people. It was part of their DNA as a young church. They've been trained from a young age. Are you a young Christian? I want to tell you something you may not know. Statistically, 40 and older do the majority of sponsoring God's work. 40 and under just lazily reap the benefits. You give to plant seeds and fight weeds. To plant seeds and fight weeds. That's combat giving. Now consistent giving. Consistent giving is habit forming. It's, it's recurring. You remember the map I showed you? After Paul left the map, the church at Philippi didn't give him another gift. Until he received this care basket 10 years later. He didn't rip them for this. Like, how 10 years and you didn't contribute? No, he just said, it's great that your love is blooming for the work of God again. They had a heart for unreached people groups. Has your zeal to reach unreached people groups increased or decreased in the last year? Now, I like definite numbers. You probably know that from my personality. I like definite numbers. I like definite percentages. But we do not have figures on what the church at Philippi gave. We don't know how much they gave or what percentage they gave. We do know they had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament, but they definitely had the Old Testament. So we know that they studied how Old Testament believers gave something called the tithe. They would, they would give 10% of their unearning or income back to God. And actually, I don't see why so many preachers miss it. There were actually two tithes. 20% every year. And then every third year, there was another tithe. Which if you broke it down, it would be about 23% of your income per year. Plus a temple tax. Plus the corners of the field. Plus the stuff that fell off the cart when they were harvesting. That was sort of like profit sharing plan for the poor. In addition to that, they were to give willingly out of their hearts, sacrificially of the first fruits, whatever they wanted to give. Now, that funded their national government, which was a theocracy. Now, how did the Philippians process that Old Testament information into their giving? I don't know. How will you process that into your giving? I don't know. It's not for me to decide, but I can pose a question. Has your giving increased or decreased at this same point last year? Has your giving 
increased or decreased from the same point last year? Now that's the history of giving. Verses 14 through 16. Now let's look at the theology of giving. Let's look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Now let's stop there. Tony Morita pointed out that when Paul received the gift, he avoided three common mistakes. Manipulation, flattery, and silence. Manipulation. Paul doesn't want his thank you note for the gift to be interpreted as a request for more money. He says later in the passage, I have enough. I am full. I have a full refrigerator. I have full cupboards. I'm fully caught up on my rent. And, and sometimes nonprofits will send you letters and, and they don't quite come across this way. <laughs> Say things like, thanks for your past support, but you haven't sent anything recently. Do you hate orphans? <laughs> Now, the letters don't actually say that, but the, the message may contain a guilt-driven request. And Paul doesn't want his thank you note to be portrayed as a clever way of asking for more money. Now, Paul also avoids flattery. Paul doesn't go over the top in his commendation. He doesn't tell the church at Philippi, mm, I am de dedicating this prison cell to you. I'm going to have a plaque with your names on it, and I'm going to hang it right here. No, Paul does, doesn't go over the top with thanks. So he avoids manipulation, he avoids flattery, he also avoids silence. Some people are fearful if they show any gratitude to the giver, that the giver will become puffed up. They're playing some weird mental game with themselves and Paul doesn't do it. Verse 17 continues. But I seek the fruit that increases to your account. In other words, I'm thrilled to receive your gifts. Not just because what they mean for me, but because what they mean for you. Your earthly investment accrues heavenly dividends. Which leads us to our fourth gospel giving application, and it's this. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Let's say Jim has $100. And he knows when he dies, he can't take that money with him. But he can invest it into God's work on earth and receive dividends in heaven. Listen, whenever you invest in God's work, whenever you share financially in gospel efforts, you're not really giving anything away. You're investing in blue chip stock and the dividends will last forever. You're sending it on ahead to heaven. Fruit that increases, as the text says, to your credit. Fruit that you will receive in eternity. The safest and surest investment you can make is to faithfully steward your resources for the good of God's kingdom. Don't ever think that when you give money or material things to the cause of Christ that you are giving up anything. You're giving up nothing. You are investing in eternity. Verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. Now let's stop here for a moment. Epaphroditus was the church member who took the short-term mission trip from Philippi to Rome, remember the map, to give gifts to Paul. He went for a while and then he came back home. You could say it's the, uh, a biblical ground for a short-term mission trip. That's what he did. Paul continues in verse 18. He's, he's looking at the basket. All right, he's looking at this basket that they sent him and he says... A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, we should not step quickly over the word sacrifice. And you say, they sent him a sacrifice? They sent him dead, 
a dead lamb with a bunch of sickos. No, no, it wasn't a lamb. It was no animals. But whatever they sent, he looked at it and he called it a sacrifice. And we should not step quickly over the word sacrifice. It's Old Testament imagery. In the Old Testament, God's people built an altar and laid a sacrifice on it and then perfumed the sacrifice so that when it was lit, it made a, a pleasing aroma that would ascend skyward. Paul says sacrificial giving ascends skyward and enters into the nostrils of God and pleases Him. What smells please you? Barbecue? From the Texas barbecue, that's what does it for me. Baseball fields, candles, coffee in the morning. This is why you should give faithfully. Your giving pleases God. Paul indeed places the highest possible value on giving. He says it's a means of worshiping God. You say, Kyle, I've been in church for years and I've never heard about this. It's everywhere in the Bible. The mature believer knows that giving is no burden. It's pure joy. It's a glad act of worship. Which leads us to our fifth gospel giving application. Giving is a sacred act of worship. You say, yo, I knew listening to preaching was a sacred act of worship. I knew singing was a sacred act of worship. Giving is a sacred act of worship. What the Philippians did for Paul is this. They, they withdrew, withdrew from his or her account. Maybe they kept it you know, un, under the mattress. I don't know. Withdrew from his or her account and they contributed to God's work. But watch this. It wasn't a financial withdrawal. It was spiritual worship. D do you know what you did last week when you put money in the offering basket? Do you know what you did when you bought some groceries for the family in need? Do you know what you did when you wrote a check for a student preparing for ministry? Do you know what you did when you offered a servant of Christ your home for some rest, your automobile for travel, your frequent flyer miles for a ticket? Do you know what you did when you set up recurring giving online? All of that was a sweet-smelling sacrifice roasting on the altar, filling the air with fragrance, pleasing God. You give for the advance of the gospel, but you also give because you've received this gospel. If you're not a giver, you don't understand the gospel. What is the primary indicator of the state of your heart in the Bible? It's learning Reformed theology. No. It's mastering eschatological arguments. No. It's judged by your giving. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You imitate God when you give. For God so loved the world that he gave. Satan is a stealer. God is a giver. John 10.10. 10. Who are you imitating? If you aren't a giver, it shows you haven't been amazed by grace. Your treasure isn't God. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I was reading John MacArthur this week along with like a million other people on this passage. But John MacArthur said... I believe that the context here, every need of yours, when it mentions every need of yours, that it means material needs, earthly needs, which have, have been to some degree sacrificed by the Philippians and would be replenished amply by God in response to that sacrifice. 
Verse 16, Paul says, my need, my need, my need. You meant my need, my need. Verse 19, he says, so God will meet every need of yours. Which leads us to the sixth gospel giving application. And that's just simply, God will meet your needs. God will meet your needs. He said, Kyle, you, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. I'm tempted to quit, quit giving. I'm tempted to quit giving to God. The Philippian church's investment strategy challenges us to be trusting. Let me just pose some questions. Are you waiting for more margin in the bank account before you give? How much cushion in reserve is finally enough to free you to open your heart and your checkbook wider? Gospel giving is like having children. If you wait until you can afford it, you will never do it. Paul said this church gave out of their extreme poverty. Poverty. 2 Corinthians 8. They gave out of their extreme poverty. You, you Philippians, Paul says, you Philippians gave out of your poverty. But God is going to give to you, notice, according to his riches. God's wealth is so far beyond our imagination that it makes any of today's billionaires look like Africa's poorest orphan. Now, Paul didn't say, my God will meet all of your greeds. He provides needs, not greeds. Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread, not cake. Whether your need is a job or wisdom or bread or baby formula. During the 1800s, Missionary George Mueller cared for thousands of orphan children in Bristol, England. One morning, all the plates and the cups and the bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the stockroom, no money to buy food, and the children were standing waiting for their morning meal. Mueller had nothing to feed these children. Mueller said, children, you know you must be in time for your school. Now lifting up his hands, he prayed. He prayed, Dear Father, we thank Thee for what Thou art going to give us to eat. And at that exact moment, there was a knock at the door. It was the local baker. He said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and have brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker, and no sooner than he left, there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He had announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. Church family, when you see God come through for Mueller, when you see God come through for these orphans, when you see God come through for Paul, when you see God come through for meeting the needs of these Philippians because they gave, you can only respond with verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is writing this in a way that invites the entire Philippian assembly to respond by saying, Amen. Verse 20 is a great doxology. It is ascribing glory to God for the promise 
of meeting needs. The final application is this. Paul leaves us a little preview of what God can do with human resources. Paul leaves us with a little preview on what God can do with human resources. Verse 21. Paul likes the word greet here. See if you can tell. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Seems like a lot of greetings. What's the big deal? Well, you realize what Paul's saying here, right? It's the only time he ever says this. He's saying, Philippians, I just want you to know this. There are Christians now in the emperor's household. In that mad, maniacal, wicked man's household, there are now Christians. J.B. Lightfoot, the great New Testament scholar, has a, a marvelous treatment of this whole idea of Christians in Caesar's household. And, and he's actually studied lists discovered by archaeologists that give names of people in Caesar's household. And he can test that there are many names in that list that parallel the list that you find in Romans chapter 16. Where Paul ends the letter listing those that have given gospel help to him. William Barclay summarizes this so well when he wrote, The Galilean carpenter had already begun to rule those who ruled the greatest empire in the world. Think of it, my friends. 30 years after Jesus is crucified, this marginal, persecuted minority sect has converts in the household of the emperor of the Roman Empire. In the year 197, about 130 years after Paul wrote these words, a Christian, Tertullian, wrote a letter to Roman citizens saying this, We are but of yesterday. We are but of yesterday. Meaning, we've only been around for a little while. We are but of yesterday, but we have filled your empire, your cities, your islands, your forts, your towns, your marketplaces, your very own military camps and wards and companies and palace and senate and forum. All of these swarm with Christians. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. End quote. Now, how did God choose to do that? God used the gifts of his children to spread his gospel locally and around the world. God chooses to use your money to bring people into his kingdom. God's work financed by God's people. I was driving in this morning, and um, this was hours ago. This was like 12 hours ago. It seems like that after all these services. I was driving in this morning, and um, I was passing fields. And I was reminded for the first time of the people, of the people who gave so that I could hear the gospel message. I totally forgot. I never gave a thought to them until this moment. I, I trusted Christ as my Savior at 16. I'm now 33. Is that right? Is that how old I am? doesn't really matter. I'm getting old. <laughs> I passed that field and I thought, um, I, went to a, I went to a small little private, started out Christian school. And um, I thought, who financed that? And I was reminded that there were two farmers 
not, not rich, didn't have a lot of money, but they were members of the same local church. And the pastor and the elders of that church, they wanted to start a local school, so they all got behind it and started it. And it was going well for a while, and then it just started to become a money drain. And they all wanted to close it. And then these two wealthy farmers, these two not wealthy farmers, but they're wealthy in heaven. These two farmers said, we're going to keep it open. We're going to give enough to our local church so that we can keep it open. And they kept it open. <clears throat> a year or two after they made that decision, a little six-year-old boy gets in classroom causing a disturbance, looking fly <laughs> for a white guy. It was me. And I heard the gospel for the first time. And I didn't trust Christ as my Savior then. It was 10 years later when I repented of my sin and trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. But that was the first time I heard the gospel and the only time until I got saved. For 10 years, God used that. And I'm telling you, when you finance God's work, you may be forgotten. Even by pastors. Like I forgot these two farmers. I don't even know if they're living. But it really doesn't matter. They've got their reward in eternity. I love how Paul ends it in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Can I give you an interesting footnote? Every single epistle Paul writes, he ends it the same way. Every one of them. Grace. He opened up this book with grace in chapter 1. He closes it with grace in chapter 4. As Paul writes this letter, his quill is dipped in the ink of grace. This letter is saturated with the grace of Christ. Friends. Now we climb down this old Philippian tree with hands full of grace and hands full of promises that our sacrifices on earth will reap massive dividends in eternity.